do return your seats and turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, the 11th chapter, and we'll commence reading from verse 45. John chapter 11, and I commence reading from verse 45. The Bible reads, if you are there, I commence reading. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went out, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Continuing in our study of the Gospel of John, we come this morning to verse 45 through to verse 40, uh, 57, which is basically the end of the 11th chapter. Two weeks ago when I was preaching, we considered verse 38 through to verse 44. And in that portion of scriptures, we did uh, consider that Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus is the giver of life. And we saw that he does not only give physical life, but he also gives spiritual life. He came that we might have life and have life in abundance. And that's in reference to the spiritual life that he gives. But also learned two weeks ago that the, the author of the Gospel of John, John himself, as he writes, he's silent on the details of Lazarus' life after he was brought back to life. And we saw that the reason was simple. is that John wanted, us, uh, wanted our focus to be exclusively on the giver of life the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He did not want us to begin speculate about life beyond the grave or what is it that Lazarus would have experienced and miss the whole point of the record that John gives us. And it is this, that all of us must bring our minds, our attention and our focus on the giver of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the summary was this, that newness of life is the inescapable and happy fruit of being united to Jesus Christ in the likeness 
of his resurrection. And that's what we learned two weeks ago. And this morning we come to 45 through to verse 57. And here what we really see in the reactions of some of the Jews is the, what I'm calling the miserable picture of human nature. The miserable picture of the human nature. The Lord Jesus Christ had just performed a miracle. Lazarus had been brought back to life. And this miracle had an effect on some and the others it had a negative effect. For some of the Jews, John records, they believed. Yet for others, they did not believe what had just happened and instead saw this as an occasion to report the matter to the Pharisees or to the leaders. And the miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ had performed in Bethany and him to be on the wanted list. The conclusion of the council was that this man must die. This man must die. And really what we're seeing in the reactions of some of the Jews, it's this, this picture of the human nature. That human beings steeped in sin regardless of the miracles performed. For them, there's just one thing in mind, to get rid of God, if possible, at whatever cost. And as we open up those verses, ask yourself the question. The message of the Lord Jesus Christ, has it caused you to see your sin and come to him in faith and in repentance? or you continue to trying to find a way to justify your sins like some of the Jews that were present at that time. So let's open up those verses and draw lessons for ourselves this morning. The first thing we would like us to see is the desperate wickedness of man's heart the desperate wickedness of man's heart. Verse 45 and verse 46. Many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now the desperate wickedness of man's heart is seen in the response of some of the Jews that second group that went to the Pharisees. The response to the sign or to the miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ had done was twofold. Many of the Jews, as we are told, believed. They believed on the basis of the evidence they had seen. The fact that Lazarus had been brought back to life was undeniable. And so based on the evidence they had seen, they believed. They had seen what Christ had done. And they had no any reason to give as to why they should not believe who this person was. But in contrast, others went to inform the religious leaders of Jesus' action. And apparently this action or this report is a gesture of disapproval of what Jesus had done or what Jesus had claimed to be. These informers were so near the kingdom of God, yet there is no evidence that they believed. We do not know what their motives were. We don't know what motivated them to go to the leaders, the Pharisees, and report. 
fact, John gives us this contrast between those who believe Jesus and those who went to the Pharisees. They had witnessed a mighty miracle, an amazing miracle, a stunning miracle. A man who had been dead for four days and was buried was raised to life in the presence of many witnesses. The fact was undeniable. They could not deny the miracle. In the face of overwhelming evidence, they shut their eyes and refused to be convinced. There was no way to argue against what Christ had done. But we read there that nonetheless, they did not believe, especially those from the religious group. And what we really see there, this miserable picture of human nature that John paints for us in these verses is that we must not presume that miracles alone have the power to convert men's souls. We must not presume that miracles on their own can change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. This idea is, is completely delusional. Some think that if only we saw some wonderful miracle, if we only see God perform some mighty acts right before us, then we will put off the indecision and follow Christ. Yet here we see that a miracle a mighty miracle was done by the second person of the Godhead. The Lord Jesus Christ brought forth Lazarus from the dead. And what is it that it produced in some? It was produced a settled rejection. It is the grace of God that wicked hearts need to be converted from their sins. It is, the spirit, it is the grace of the Spirit in the hearts of men and not miracles that our souls require. A desperate heart, a wicked heart, does not need miracles. It needs the grace of God. The grace of God, which is made effectual by the working of the Holy Spirit through the word preached. It is that which causes that stubborn heart to see its sins being put upon Christ and hearing the Son of God saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a effectual work of God the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and causes us to see our desperate need of a Savior. A.W. Pink in his, in his book writes, unless our hearts are affected and our lives molded by God's word, we are no better off than a starving man with a cookbook in his hands. Unless our hearts are affected and our lives are molded by God's word, we are no better off than a starving man with a cookbook in his hand. And so John paints this picture before us. But just in case you're here this morning and you've convinced yourself that unless a mighty miracle happened, unless I witnessed someone was dead and is brought forth from the grave, and I witness it with my eyes, then I will believe. And the Apostle John is telling us that that is delusional. What you need 
It's not miracles. It's the grace of God given to us in Christ Jesus. Yet every day we see multitudes flocking into places or to crusades where someone promises to see them that they'll see miracles. And they go to such events hoping that they'll see a miracle and then that miracle will convince them that God is there. And many are being deceived. Many are being made to lose, to lose focus on Christ and to focus on the miracles being done. And yet Jen, John shows us that that's a picture of the human nature. Always wanting something to stimulate them. And yet the message of God is clear. Christ came into this world to give us life and life in its abundance. If we only turn away from our sins and believe in him for the forgiveness of sin, we will be saved. We will be saved. Second thing we see is a determined opposition. A determined opposition. We've seen the desperate wickedness of man's heart. Second thing we see is the determined opposition. And this is from verse 47 through to verse 54. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, that year said to them you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish he did not say this of his own accord but being a high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And again you see John Hence, this miserable picture of the human nature before us. And it is seen in this determined opposition of the Jews, of some of the Jews. The impact of Jesus' miracle in Bethany resulted in, a, in calling of a meeting by the Pharisees. The council expressed not only disapproval, but frustration. And they were determined that they needed to do something. This man, Jesus, needed to be dealt with. And so in verse 47 and 48, you see that they sort of define their apparent problem. And their problem is that this man, Jesus, is our problem. And so they needed to take actions. They saw no need to, re to reevaluate their previous ways or thoughts concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. They had no time to think of the views or to observe the views of Jesus. But all they were seeing is that there was this problem they had. It didn't matter what Jesus had done. It didn't matter the evidence before them. They simply grouped Jesus Christ as an imposter and one who was 
causing rebellion in the nation. And so they convinced themselves this is the problem. They did not see any blessings from God in the miracles that Jesus had done. They did not seem to care or even to discern that what was happening is the work of God. They did not seem to care. For them, they simply analyzed, this is our problem, and if we let the problem persist, the Romans will come and take over the land. So for them, they were more concerned about their political status than their religious status, their political stand than their religious position. And they anticipated that the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will begin to gather people to himself or it will cause people uh, to, to gather around the Lord Jesus Christ and then the Romans will fear a revolution and will intervene in that situation and move those religious leaders and install their own as a way of curtailing that revolution. And so to them, this was their problem. This was their dilemma. And they needed to get rid of this man. And then in, we see 49 through to verse 50, 52, they propose a solution. And this solution is seen in the words of Caiaphas, the high priest. And in his solution, you, you see his arrogance. You see his advice and you see his prophecy. And his arrogance is seen in the opening statements. And it is taught by historians that the, the, the arrogance that Caiaphas shows was common of the, of, of the Sadducees. They, ha they had a way of speaking down on their peers. And we see it in Caiaphas there, where he begins to address the council and basically telling them, you know nothing. There's nothing that you know. And for him it is very clear what needs to be done here. And he's wondering why the rest are actually slow in implementing the decision. And so he shows them that they know nothing. And then he goes on to advise them what needs to be done. And he's basically saying in his advice to the council, it is better that one man dies than the whole nation perish. That's what he's telling them. To him the solution was obvious. Why can't you see it? What is stopping you from seeing what we need to do? And he wants the council to focus on their personal interests, their self-interest. He's saying, look, if we don't do anything about this man, your position, your interest will be gone. If the nation was to perish, then there will be no people for us to have authority over. But if one man died, whatever crisis his death might bring, that we can handle. So it is better that one man should die than the entire nation. He wanted them to see that their position was more secured with one man dying than the entire nation. Self-interest was a driving motive. Not Christ's innocence. They did not even care that justice should be done. 
Self-interest was what was driving them. And so what the council needed to do is to do something about this Jesus. And then John records for us that actually Caiaphas' words were a prophecy. While he was saying it, motivated by his perverse heart, he did not understand the significance of his words. God, in his sovereignty, in his sovereign will, was speaking through this high priest. And John records for us to see that the very words that Caiaphas spoke were the words that happened and are fulfilled in the death of Christ. And through his death, many are being brought to Christ. Therefore, John paints for us this picture of the human nature. And John shows us that human beings are determined to oppose God. They are determined to, ob ob to oppose God. They do not take time to examine the evidence before them. They have no interest even to check the claims of the Christian faith. They have no interest even to look at the good that the Christian faith has done to this world. They have no interest to see whether Christianity is adding to the values of life on earth. Human beings devoid of the Spirit of God, devoid of the grace of God, are determined to oppose God at all costs. And they are simply interested in their own selfish interests. If this means my job is secured, I will do so. If this means I'm going to achieve my purposes, I will do so. Isn't it amazing that when we hear of what our leaders are agreeing to, sometimes we, we sit and ask ourselves whether, were they really thinking? Why would anyone agree to such a thing? Why would anyone pen their signature and say, look, you, you can marry, a man can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman. Or, let's allow people to have the freedom to choose if they want to be boys or girls, male or female. And then you hear there was, there was a meeting of leaders, educated leaders, so educated that they cannot tell the difference between a boy and a girl. That's a misery that the picture that John gives us of the human nature. They are determined to oppose God. And the problem is not lack of knowledge, but a stubborn rebellion against everything that God stands for. And this is a message to us this morning. You can oppose God, but you cannot frustrate God. You can deceive yourself that you are opposing God but you will pay the consequences of your stubbornness. The Bible is very clear that the enemies of God, the enemies of truth, they can scheme, they can plot, they can do all that they want. They can have this determined opposition against God, against God's children, against God's word, but the Bible is very clear the overarching reality, the truth of God's word, is that he who sits on the throne 
thus. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? God is not seated on the throne scared that he'll be thrown out of his authority, out of his throne room. He's looking at your rebellion and he's basically laughing at you. He's basically saying, first of all, they are in my world, the world I created. I give them the oxygen they need to be sustained. And now they sit trying to throw me out of my throne. God laughs. God scoffs at your folly and calls you to repent and turn away from such folly. One can liken the, the opposition from sinful human beings like a mutiny that is planned by children in a home. Like imagine children wanting to rebel against their parents. After eating their parents' food, then they go in the bedroom and then say, look, mom and dad, they've gone too far. We need to do something about it. Now when the parents are listening, they will not be scared. They will simply laugh at, at, the, at, at the, the folly of the children. Because just one word will, will pump sense into them. Now God out of his mercy, out of his grace, allows you to wallow into your folly allows you to rebel against him, to oppose him. And he still whispers to you that I sent my son to die for your sins. Come to your senses. Turn away from your sins. You cannot frustrate me. You cannot disturb my plans. Caiaphas, the high priest, was speaking out of his own selfish interest. Yet God sovereignly allowed his words to proclaim one of the central themes of the scriptures that Christ died not for one, but for many. And in his death, he will bring his own from east, west, South and north. I first meant it for evil. God meant it for God. And so you see that human beings are determined to oppose God. And John is saying that's a miserable picture when you think of it. That the people who are dependent on God for everything can even think of opposing him. And then thirdly and lastly we see this anticip this decided anticipation. This decided anticipation. And basically verse 55 through to verse 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as I stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So there was this decided anticipation. Will this man show up? What will happen to him? And again you see John gives us that picture 
this miserable picture of the human nature. Yeah, and it is in that decided anticipation of the leaders and those who were at the Passover. When you read the Gospel of John, this would have been the third Passover of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to 25, we are told of the Passover that Jesus had attended. Then in chapter 6, verse 1 through to verse 4, and then this one recorded here in chapter 11, verse 55 through to verse 57. And so John records that large numbers had gathered from all over Jerusalem and beyond. And many arrived early in order to purify themselves. Uh, according to the ceremony of purification recorded in the Mosaic law. When you read in Exodus 19, verse 10, although to verse 15, you have those laws that before the Passover, before you are about to sacrifice, some, some ceremonial purification needed to be done. And this was just in case there was sin along the way. And one of those was that maybe you've handled a dead body. It may not have been your fault, but you found a dead body on your way to the Passover, and then you decided to help or to handle that dead body. And so the mosaic laws of purification provided uh, that, that you go early enough, have yourself purified before you can participate in the Passover. And apparently Jerusalem was bustling with the talk of Jesus. It was headline news. Everyone was talking about what had happened, that this man had raised someone from the dead. And everyone was talking about the miracle that happened in Bethany. They're also talking about the plan of the authorities to arrest Jesus. And so in view of this development, there was this speculation that will he come? Will he show up? It is on the wanted list. Everyone wants him. The authorities want him. In fact, this was also posing a crisis in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he showed, if he showed up, he would be arrested. And so everyone was wondering, will he come? So everyone was caught up in the excitement. And this excitement was not a, a devoted a devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, but simply wanting to know what is it that is going to happen if he was to show up. Will the authorities arrest him? Will they run away? Will they leave him to participate in the Passover? And the anticipation of what might transpire was greatly heightened by the fact that the, 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 the leaders had circulated the news that they intend to arrest him when he comes. So there was this, this anticipation and the leaders had already decided, once he shows up, this is what we will do. We will not interrogate him. We will not question him. We will arrest him. If you know where he is, please bring him. Or let us know he will be arrested. And so what we see here, in this decided anticipation that John records for us, is that this world is no friends to Christians. The world throws plans, programs, ideas around Christians waiting for them to react. And so that when they react, they can carry out their already decided views or reaction or plans. And so they are simply waiting to see what is it that this man will do? And then will bring all kinds of...
terms of accusation and arrest them. Remember Daniel in Babylon, in Daniel chapter 6, when his fellow leaders went to the king and told the king that issue out an order that no one was to wash, was to pray to any man or any god for the next 30 days except to bow down to you, O king. The men knew what they wanted. They wanted to trap Daniel. They knew that Daniel would not bow to their, to their, to, to their decision. He would not bow to their command. They knew that their target was Daniel. They knew that Daniel was a true worship of Yahweh and he would not bow to any man or any image. And in the minds of his fellow leaders, they had already decided what they wanted to do. And now they waited in anticipation that if Daniel was to pray to the God of the heavens, we would tell the king. This is the world we live in. The world knows who are true Christians, not just religious individuals. They know those who are truly Christian, those who take their Christianity seriously. And so they set traps for them. They know that if we say this, this man or this woman will not bow to what we are saying. So they plot, they plan, they wait. The world knows that true Christians desire to honor God in all they do. And the integrity and morality of true Christians threaten their interests. And so they plan and patiently wait. And you wonder why in your workplaces you do have difficulties with certain individuals. And you wonder why that friend of yours at work or at school who says he's a Christian He's never bothered about what's happening around. The world know who two Christians are and they target them. And any remarks they say, they blow it out of proportion and begin to accuse those who are God's children that they don't love their neighbors. They don't love those whom God has created differently. This is a world we live in. There's already this decision they've made. And so they wait is in anticipation, wondering what are you going to do? And they'll use language that if you're not careful, you'll think you're with them. It's a trap. Remember a few years ago in while I was still working in the, in, in the NGO world, in accounts, well, there was a proposal coming from the Minister of Health that we must go out and begin to distribute condoms among school-going children. Basically, it was supposed to start with secondary schools from grade 10 all the way to the last grade. And there was this lady who is a health specialist that came to conduct a seminar and told us on the, the advantages, the importance, and all that it, 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 we are promoting life and uh, safe sex in, in secondary schools. And it's, it was a Christian thing to do. And I remember at that time, 
must have been 26 years old, full of zeal. During question and answer, I asked my boss if I could ask that lady a question. And in God's providence, I was allowed. Remember, we are the one hosting the seminar, so we could not be asking questions to facilitators. But I was allowed to ask the question. And I asked the lady this question. So at the beginning of your presentation, you said you have four daughters. She said yes. And she gave me the ages, and I still remember the ages, 13, 15, 17, and 22. And so I said, just help me understand what you're saying. In simple terms, I am a bachelor, single. Are you telling me if I got a condo, I can have sexual relationships with any of your children? Because it's okay for you to say, let's distribute to the school-going children. But you forget that those are your children. So is that what you're saying? I remember she was quiet. To this day, I remember her countenance dropping. It's like now she realized what she was saying. And after the seminar, she came and whispered to me, basically saying, Mwanawandi, my son, this is just work for me. is the world we live in. Simply waiting to see what will Christians do and then we'll heap all kinds of accusation upon them. If you don't join us in giving condoms to students, then you're not loving. They're having sexual relationships anyway. So the loving thing for us to do is to help them. a stubborn refusal to adhere to the truth of God's word. Stubbornness to biblical truth leads to failure. And it leads to a failure to see the miserable end of unbelievers. Persistent hardness in sin we will lead to that ultimate failure standing before God and being condemned to eternal flames in hell these were the actions of the Pharisees these are the actions of the people of the world and John is saying to us when you think of the world, this is the, the picture I'm giving you. It's a miserable picture. They've decided to ruin themselves. They've got no concern about God and what he says. And now that one day they will give an account to this great God. here this morning. Maybe one of those who like setting traps for Christians. God is calling you to turn away from your life of sin, from that stubbornness of yours, and come to him in faith and in repentance. John gives us this, gives us a miserable picture of the human nature in those words. Human beings need the grace of God, not miracles. Human beings need to come to terms that they've offended God. And without God's grace, without God's Holy Spirit convicting them of sin, they will die in sin and in misery and be totally separated from God for eternity.
human beings have this inner disposition the love of sin than of God and John is saying to us that while you may look at those and think they're enjoying life you may think of them as pest setters that's how to enjoy life by living a sinful life living in rebellion against God John is saying that's a picture of misery true freedom is found in Christ knowing that your sins have been forgiven and each day as you live you can sing with joy that I've found a friend in Jesus he's everything to me he's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul that's what brings true freedom to know that even when I stand before God my sin will not condemn me because Christ has atoned for my sins and he gave me the grace to respond to his salvation and when I did, he changed the course of my life forever. That's where true freedom is found. In the glorious forgiveness that Christ offers. And you who are Christians, let me remind you that this world is not a friend of God. It's not a friend of sinners. Rather, it's not a friend of Christians. And as you live your life, they are watching you. They are marking all you do. They are hearing everything you are saying. And I pray that you will let them see the Savior as He shines in you and you let them see his power controlling you every day. They are watching you and marking all that you are doing. Let Christ be shown. Let Christ be seen in all that you do. And that through your life, many may come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen.